Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Our guest today is Faith Pennick, who wrote a book for the 33 and a third series on D'Angelo's record, Voodoo. Welcome, Faith. Oh, thank you for having me, Steve. So we've done a bunch of these podcasts with authors for the 33 and a third series, and it's always interesting because they have a pretty wide berth. So we always ask, what was your pitch to them about this record? I mean, basically, you know, I guess most people who pitch 33 and a third, they're pitching the album they love the most. So that wouldn't make me any different from probably anybody else that's written a 33 and a third book. I love voodoo, as you can probably tell. (laughs) Anybody who knows me personally or has read the book by now will know like, oh, yeah, she loves voodoo. (laughs) But I think the one thing that I pitched to give it a different perspective is because I'm a woman, I think I could give it a different lens. I mean, you know, the 33 and a third series is dominated by male writers you know, a lot of the people who are talked about even in relation to voodoo, I mean, obviously D'Angelo, but also Questlove, also Lovato, Rafael Sadiq, you know, it's dudes. I wanted to come at it from the perspective of a black woman who loved the album when it came out, played it nonstop, and really look at it from musically what it was, because it's not just an R&B album. It's not just a hip hop album. I think it's also jazz. It's rock. It's gospel. And I really wanted to talk about that amalgamation of sounds and not just focus on the neo-soul aspect of it. As a woman, I wanted to explore the album's vulnerability and really get into D'Angelo exploring sensitivity and his more emotional side. He was trying to say a lot of things on this album as far as what it means to be a young Black man, and particularly at the time of this album, a new father. Mm. And I think that opened a portal into his soul that you weren't really hearing a lot in records at the time. I wanted to write about that because I think when a lot of men talk about voodoo, they talk about it strictly as a musical accomplishment. So again, they talk about all the musicians that work on it and they talk about the arrangements and all of that's great. And I talk about it as well, but I wanted to get more into the meat of it. Like what was D'Angelo trying to say? What were the messages that he was trying to put out there that maybe we were a little uncomfortable with because it was coming from a black man? And I, and I think specifically of, of Untitled and even the, the reaction to the video that a lot of people couldn't handle and particularly a lot of men because it's like, oh, wait, he's singing to women and, you know, he's being vulnerable and oh my God. And, you know, it's just run, run. I really wanted to explore that because I know just the reactions that people were giving to me about voodoo were not necessarily reactions that I think people would give to men. I have my own anecdotes about this album, my experience with this album and how other people reacted particularly men, to this album. And this is in the book. I had a male friend who told me, oh, well, you just like the album because you want to fuck D'Angelo. <laughs> and I was, yeah, exactly. And I just, I was like, 
wow, this moment of sexism was brought to you by AT&T right, right. and Virgin Records, apparently. Because me- men never think that about the women that they're singing the songs. Exactly. Right. Not at all. So, yeah. And I, you know, and I cussed them out for like 10 minutes. I was, <laughs> I was like, dude, seriously? And I put that in the pitch. Like, you're not going to get probably anybody who's going to have a story like that. So I don't know if that won them over, but... Um, the book is out? It must have. The book is out, so I guess it worked. I have to say, uh, Gail Wald, who's a professor at George Washington University, wrote a wonderful book about Sister Rosetta Tharp called Shout, Sister Shout. She really championed this project. You know, after I pitched it, she got back to me and said, yeah, I hear you, and I think your take on this album is great, and I want to see it published, so... Here we are. Here we are. And let me just say that, you know, I knew peripherally of D'Angelo. Didn't know his music very well, and I specifically didn't know this record and kind of the myth, you know, behind it. One of the first authors we interviewed spoke specifically about what he called guides, and that is people in our lives who turn us on to music. And in the opening chapter, you specifically mention a girlfriend who turned you on to voodoo and... Here it is, your favorite record, or one of them. Uh, Yeah, my friend Michelle. We lived down the street from each other in Brooklyn in a neighborhood called Fort Greene. She was, at the time, a bigger D'Angelo fan than I was. She loved Brown Sugar. She still does. Actually, when Voodoo came out, like, she bought Voodoo, I think, probably the week it came out, and made a tape for me. And she did this on and off with, like, different records right. that were new. And she knew that if I hadn't bought it yet, she would, like, she would make a copy of it for me so I could listen to it you know if i really loved it i would go out and buy it anyway and vice versa you know this is before napster and sort of file sharing and that kind of thing back when good friends turned each other onto music and then you go out and turn other people onto it and buy it exactly right exactly you know at parties or in the car or whatever he had already announced that he was touring and we were gonna go see him at uh, radio city music hall that would have been march of 2000 so anyway got the tape and you know again had no no expectation no you know anything i was just i was just really listening to it out of curiosity because i was gonna go see him in concert i wasn't that in love with brown sugar i i liked it i thought overall it was a good album but i wasn't blown away the way almost all of my peers were mm. everybody i knew was like oh my god d'angelo he's everything he's so great blah 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 you know he's the new marvin gay he's the new al green i wasn't on that bandwagon yet i played you know literally played the cassette the beginning of player player comes on and you know with the chanting and the the you know the noises and the you know, the ooh, you know and i was just like what in the hell is this but i was like i'm down this is, I don't know what this is, but I'm completely down and I want to see how this plays out. And then listen to the whole album. I was just like, dear Jesus, I, I can't believe this just happened. I sent her an email and I, I think my first line was, did we listen to the same album? Because, you know, people say they're blown away by something. You know, it's, it's used a lot. It's become a trite thing to say, but I was blown away. Well, in fact, you called it in, the, in your book, the water to quench our thirst, which I thought was a pretty neat line. Yeah, but I don't know was everybody's flavor of water though you know i'm not sure if it worked for everybody maybe not enough electrolytes or too many i don't know no because when it came out that was the anticipation so many people loved brown sugar it was a five-year wait between brown sugar and voodoo so that time in the late 90s where people were like when is d'angelo dropping his new album blah blah blah, you know that drumbeat got louder and louder there was a lot of expectation you know what is he going to follow up with what is it going to sound like when is it going to come out and so when it finally came out i do think there were people who were expecting brown sugar part two and voodoo was not that at all it was not it was not at all so i think there were some people who were like what the hell is this i mean there were people who liked it i think the people who love it now are were, i'll just say this a lot of people who love it now didn't necessarily love it when it came out in 2000 because i remember talking to those people and they were like i don't know this is sort of weird it's sort of experimental i don't understand what this is it wasn't fair to d'angelo because there was so much expectation building around his second release and when it came out People wanted it to be a certain thing. And I think part of the reason I love Voodoo so much is that it wasn't Brown Sugar Redux. And it was something different. And understand that R&B at the time was sort of plastic, very color by numbers, you know, very hit driven, you know, what's going to get played on the radio. And so when Voodoo came out, it was 
it was the water that quenched my thirst, even though I wasn't even necessarily expecting that. Right. But I think other people were expecting that because they loved D'Angelo. It wasn't the music they were expecting to hear. So they were sort of like, um, I'll take this, but, <laughs> you know, would have been nice to have another, like, lady I could have, like, <laughs> you know, danced to, had sex to, whatever. The resp- I mean, you know, critically, yeah, I mean, it got pretty much universal critical acclaim. You know, it sold more than a million copies. So it did well. But I do think the, for the hardcore D'Angelo fans who were really enmeshed in Brown Sugar, I'm not sure if it was everything they wanted it to be, at least at that time. And in, in hearing it, in all fairness, it, it was a lot more than I expected. It certainly wasn't what I expected. And in your book, session guitarist Charlie Hunter, who plays on the record, he called it, quote, the perfect blend of the intellectual and the visceral. And that's pretty good. He nailed it. Uh, that is the perfect summary of voodoo, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have to agree, especially after hearing it. I mean, there's a lot going on there. I listened to it throughout reading the book. It's just deep. There's many things to listen to. So at the time, you mentioned some of the 90s musicians who were forging new paths in soul and R&B. There's Erica Badu, The Roots, Maxwell, Diggable Planets, Lauren Hill, and they were blowing up pretty big. But I'm reading the book, and I'm like, I love the first two Angie Stone records. And I'm like, where's Angie Stone in this? And then, boom, she comes into the story in a really big way. I mean, D'Angelo owes a lot of his success to Angie Stone. And it started before Voodoo. It started with Brown Sugar. D'Angelo's music publisher at the time, Jocelyn Cooper, basically paired Angie Stone with D'Angelo. He was in the middle of making Brown Sugar. I think he was having some issues as far as, you know, staying on schedule, being focused. You know, this was his first album. You know, he was signed to a major label, EMI. So, you know, and, and even with that, you know, there was a lot of expectation and a lot writing on this debut album. And I think Cooper felt like he needs to work with someone more seasoned to help him get this record finished, to help help him complete the album. Angie Stone was the perfect choice. She's from the South. She grew up in South Carolina, started out in the rap group The Sequence, and then went into her own, you know, song singing and songwriting career and also grew up in the gospel tradition like D'Angelo did. So, you know, they had all of this in common. She was brought in. They actually co-wrote a song on Brown Sugar, Jones and My Bones. And as they were working together, they became romantically involved. That continued, at least through the beginning of Voodoo. Angie Stone co-wrote Send It On with D'Angelo. It was basically a tribute to their son, Michael, who was born in early 97. The interesting thing is that as they brought this new child into the world, their relationship was starting to fray. And they broke up while D'Angelo was recording Voodoo. She co-wrote several songs on the album with him and really was the, in a way, like his cheerleader, his, you know, a co-creator, you know, someone to sort of help him be more focused as a songwriter. She was not in the studio a lot when they recorded Voodoo. I think part of that was because their relationship was ending. So I think the songs that she wrote with him, they wrote prior to him going into Electric Lady. There's no question that she a primary reason why he has a career that he has because she was one of the people that helped to teach him discipline as far as being a writer and also I think gave him you know a certain level of freedom to be vulnerable to express yourself in, a, in more honest ways and not just you know in the sense of, of being more sensitive but also embracing that braggadocio I mean mm-hmm. in the first song Player Player she co-wrote that as well she helped both sides of him you know the the yin and the yang if you will as far as as far as his creative process and i think that leads into my next question Um, one of the things that stuck out to me uh, you give her a lot of credit for what you call emotional code switching and i'd never heard that phrase Uh, you know i did a little research on it but can you explain what you mean by that and stone's role in that Sure. Well, as I was saying, I mean, D'Angelo is a sensitive man that definitely can be heard in his music. He's one of those guys that wears his heart on his sleeve. I think she helped him do that. I Again, I think men, and that's not to say that men can't be sensitive and men, I mean, men aren't emotional creatures. I mean, I think if you, again, if you look at Maxwell or even look at one of his forebears, Marvin Gaye, right, right. I think he's a big one who really wore his heart on his sleeve when it came to love songs 
songs. He wrote pretty much an entire album about his ex-wife, Anna Gordy. You know what I'm saying? So, that, that's a classic. That, that's a classic. Right, exactly. So, you know, I think there is a path that leads to D'Angelo as far as, you know, expressing his sensitive side that comes from men as well um, and other black men. But probably harder to do it in, in kind of the hip-hop rap world, right? Well, I was about to get to that. Yeah, I think at the time, hip-hop was starting to grow. If it was like sort of a expression of raw emotion, I don't want to say it wasn't sincere, but it was still sort of polished and commercialized. And I think he, like Maxwell, they were trying to tell different stories and be maybe more subtle, more sincere, more ethereal with, with how they were communicating their emotional sides. That was harder for Black men to do at that time. I think Black men probably felt like they had to be more sort of locked down in their masculinity. And I think D'Angelo wanted to be both. I mean, like Prince did as well. I mean, I think Prince got a pass because it was sort of like, well, he's sort of weird. He's a freak. So (laughs) Prince wasn't held to the same rules as other artists were. He also had kind of a complicated relationship with rap. When you hear this record or or some of the others, it's, it's almost a different level. Well, yeah, I mean, D'Angelo loved hip-hop and still does. I mean, you hear a song like Left and Right, you know, and you've got Method Man and Red Man pretty much being misogynistic. And then you were just like, what? You know, and I love that song, but it was like, okay, that's not... But it it works for the song, though. I mean, I was actually, when I first got the record, that was my favorite song on the record. You know, it is that sort of, you know, tightrope of, again, embracing your masculinity and sometimes going to those dark places. But anyway, coming back to Angie Stone, emotional code switching. I, you know, she probably helped him feel more comfortable being open like that. When men have women they trust around them, either in the creative process or even in a personal level, then they tend to be more revelatory. They tend to be more honest and more open in in how they express themselves. And so when I say code switching, I think, you know, particularly Black people, I mean, it's, it goes back to Paul Lawrence Dunbar, you know, the poem, We Wear the Mask. I think Black people, you have a mask for the outside world to deal with racism, to deal with people sort of undermining you, not, you know, having lower expectations of you, and you have, you still have to survive, you still have to do what you have to do, but then you take that mask off when you get home and you can sort of be more you. And I think working with someone like Angie Stone, you know, and having experience and influence and support in his life, I think made D'Angelo a stronger songwriter in that he could just be 100% him. He wanted to express all of himself. Because black men get shit for being too sensitive. Black men, and for for obvious reasons, have to protect themselves. And I think being around black women who will give you permission to be you is going to help you be more demonstrative and more eloquent in how you express yourself as a as an artist. You know, it's worth pointing out too that he was really young at this point too, right? Yes, he was in his early twenties when he right. recorded Voodoo. He was twenty five, about to be twenty six when it came. I think that's one of the things that stunned me when it came out Uh, in 2000 was, one, it was such a 180 from Brown Sugar. Like, I couldn't believe it was the same artist. I was like, this is D'Angelo? Wait, the dude to put up? Wait, huh? No, for real. I just, I, I it, it still blows my mind because it, it, to me, it's just like night and day. You know, when people, when you talk about, you know, like a race car that goes zero to 60, that to me is what Brown Sugar to Voodoo is. It's just a zero to 60 where you're just like, I don't know where, where did this come <laughs> from? The fact that he could be that prolific, it'd be, to be able to express yourself so beautifully and have that kind of emotional intelligence in your early 20s, to me, is stunning because most everyone early 20s are like they just finished college or they're getting a job maybe they have their a place to live on their own they're just sort of trying to figure out being an adult and in many cases stumbling towards that whereas D'Angelo's like okay let me just put out an album that frankly people twice his age would have had a hard time conceiving it just really belied his age I was just like who are you? Are you an alien? I mean, and again, and particularly considering what was coming out at the time, it was just absolutely just mind-blowing, the profundity of that album from such a young man. 
We're speaking with Faith Pennock, who's the author of D'Angelo's Voodoo on the 33 and a Third series. You know, you've spoken to kind of the complexity lyrically and emotionally about the record, but one of the real big payoffs to me was musically what was going on. It was extremely complex. You know, you listen and you hear something new every time. And I think engineer Russell Alabado deserves a lot of special mention, and he brought with him you know, classic rock influences and I think strictly analog recording. And, and that's really, really apparent when you listen to the record. Russell Lovato met D'Angelo, ironically, through Angie Stone. Lovato was mixing songs for Vertical Hold, a group that Angie Stone was a part of in the 90s. Angie Stone was dating D'Angelo at the time and was introduced. Again, it was like love at first sight, basically. They started talking, and Elevato knew that this was a guy he wanted to work with and was brought on to mix three songs on D'Angelo's Brown Sugar album. From there, they both talked about how they wanted the next album to sound radically different from Brown Sugar. D'Angelo wanted the new album to be raw, messier, dirtier, and Russell Elevato was 100 hundred percent down with that he was like yes let's do that and actually he's the one that turned him on to Jimi hendrix and really got him listening to all these hendrix records and it was electric ladyland that blew d'angelo's mind and from there he said well hey let's record this at hendrix's studio let's record this at electric lady that's amazing elevato has a very eclectic background as far as music he started out in house music uh working at quad studios under the tutelage of uh, frankie knuckles and david morales and then from there became like a, a work for hire engineer on his own. You know, he loves R&B, he loves rock. And he actually turned D'Angelo on to a lot of particularly rock artists. Uh, the, uh, this is off topic from Voodoo, but like when D'Angelo was performing earlier last decade, like around, you know, 2010, 2011, um, when he was doing the shows in, in Europe, he was performing Space Oddity. Jeez. Wow. And it was Elevato that turned him on to David Bowie. D'Angelo growing up in Richmond pretty much exclusively listened to like jazz, gospel, and R&B and funk. He didn't really have a lot of exposure to rock music. You know, Russell Elevato is a ride or die analog guy. He loves recording analog. He feels that the sound is more, is richer and fuller. And that would do D'Angelo justice. And, and again, and then contribute to having that messier, more raw sound, you know, so. So they went to Electric Lady and he set up set up all these mics in many cases that hadn't been used for like two or three decades. And he really was coming up with all these ways to sort of record analog, make it not as polished as the previous album was, but still stay true to what kind of sounds and ideas and concepts D'Angelo wanted to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, he was the perfect partner for him. And I think, you know, the fact that they met, it was it was destiny for them to yeah. meet at that time and work together. Yeah, and it orally, it's a landmark record. You know, aside from those two who are clearly on the same page, there's an amazing band. You know, Questlove was on drums. As we mentioned, Charlie Hunter was on guitar. Is that right? Guitar and bass. And bass. And then there was another bass player, I think. Is that right? Or... Oh, yeah. Oh, not just another bass player. Pino Palladino oh, right, is, right, right. many would argue, the bass player. Uh, <laughs> he is the gold standard of bass playing. You could really say it was like a who's who of session musicians at the time. I mean, if you had a couple of these guys on your record, you would be elated. But the fact that all of them were on this record is a testament to how respected D'Angelo is as an artist. But also, it was his fate that they were all working together, you know, at that time, at the, you know, at the height of their ability at Electric Lady, Jimi Hendrix's studio. I mean, it's pretty mind-blowing. But as you mentioned, Questlove, I say that he and D'Angelo are two sides of the same coin. Questlove, you know, a.k.a. Amir Thompson, co-founder of The Roots, drummer of The Roots. Now he's like brand. an icon. He's, Every, yeah, yeah. He's, literally, he's literally a brand now, yeah. exactly. You know, he was, you know, it is a, you know, a very accomplished drummer, also has a huge encyclopedic knowledge of music and brought that to the voodoo recordings. Like he was the one that got something like 4,000 Soul Train performances and he and D'Angelo would watch it like homework. <laughs> They spent thousands of dollars on old records that they would play. I mean, it was really like, I call it like a music camp, uh, yeah. you know, that Virgin Records was paying for, basically, for all these guys to just sort of hang out and just listen to music and play music and, you know, just see see what would land. And I think Questlove, you know, is a, you know, he is a hip-hop artist, but also loved R&B and was really turned off by the R&B sound at the time. He called R&B at the time the shiny suit era. 
and, you know, was really sort of had a lot of disdain for it. And at one point, actually, originally sort of wrote off D'Angelo that, you know, that he was part of that sort of plastic commercial R&B sound. And then when he heard the Brown Sugar demos, was like, oh, I'm wrong. I messed up. Let me, you know, I need to be his friend. I need to work with him. And sort of did this impromptu, unofficial tryout for him, like audition at this House of Blues performance in L.A. that The Roots was playing at and played a song for, which was a Madhouse song. Madhouse was an offshoot group that Prince created. And, you know, one day, and D'Angelo was an artist and he won them over and they've been friends ever since. They complement each other perfectly as far as, you know, knowing the history of R&B, knowing their forebears, wanting to sort of pull that, but also trying to do something new. So, and then as far as the new, you bring in someone like Jay Dilla, who was not a credited contributor, but really influenced everybody there as far as fucking with time signatures and, you know, having everyone play behind the beat and really just messing up, just really being intentionally... Sloppy. Messy, sloppy, messy, as far as you know, rhythm as far as arrangements. It's just, you know, like having pieces of a puzzle and putting them together. I mean, that, that was sort of Jay Dilla's sort of influence as far as like coming in and, you know, bringing in his own mixtapes and really challenging people to sort of think outside the box as far as, you know, what hip hop is, but also using different samples from stuff that wasn't even necessarily R&B or hip hop songs and creating new things out of that. So, you, you know, he was trying to sort of set fire to what was happening in music at that time. Pino Palladino was playing for B.B. King. He was touring with him. D'Angelo and Questlove were at a show in New York. And then D'Angelo played with B.B. King. I think they did like an after set when they were like jamming. And D'Angelo saw Pino Palladino and was like, holy crap, I need to work with you. Pino Palladino saw D'Angelo and said, holy crap, I got to work with you. He's worked with him since then. He toured with him on the Voodoo Tour, played on Black Messiah and toured with him on Black Messiah as well. We mentioned Charlie Hunter, another amazing jazz musician. D'Angelo saw him perform on a show on BET and found his content information, called him up and said, hey, Charlie, would love for you to play on my album. The funny thing is, Charlie Hunter had no idea who D'Angelo yeah. was at the time. Well, he only had one album out, right? Well, right. He had only had Brown Sugar, but I mean, D'Angelo was like the rising star. It was probably like him and Maxwell. But Charlie Hunter was so ensconced in the New York jazz scene, and it was so insular that he was just like, I don't know who you are. So, But then he went back and like listened to his music and did research and went, oh, yes, I need to work with you. So that's how Charlie Hunter got involved. And then you have James Poyser, the keyboardist and producer who plays with the Roots, and he was also the like keyboardist, like the go-to session keyboardist. Um, so you had him, you had the late, great Roy Hargrove, who liked the Angelo really set fire to the music industry at a very early age. And then, of course, Raphael Sadiq, who he co-wrote and co-produced Untitled with. Raphael Sadiq, who started out with Tony, 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 the band out of Oakland, California, with songs like Feels Good and Anniversary. You know, I mean, and then you had someone like Spanky Alford. I think those are the big ones as far as, I mean, those were like the key players. And again, they were all open to experiment. They were all open to sort of set... Let's throw stuff on the wall and see what sticks. Let's just play and just see what comes out of it. I mean, it really was like, and I, I say this in the book, it was like a night of the cookers that lasted for three years. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about the music because you mentioned it's a crack studio band across genres, and they all buy into this intentional sloppiness, as, as you said. You call Chicken Grease, which might be my favorite song on the album, you call it the messiest of examples. Can you expand on that? Yeah, well, I mean, Chicken Grease, I mean, structurally, it sort of isn't a song. It's just basically this one long groove for it's like... A, it's a groove. Yeah, I mean, no, it is a groove, but I mean, there's no like first verse, chorus, second verse, bridge. It's just like, we're just going to play and then, you know, sing, basically. Because it was originally written by James Poyser and Questlove, and it was actually written for Common because he was recording Like Water for Chocolate at Electric Lady at the same time. D'Angelo basically stole it from Common because he was like, now Common doesn't know what to do with this. I know what to do with this funk. You need to give it to me. Um, and they sort of, you know, did this sort of a swap. He got Chicken Grease and then Common got um, a song called Ghetto Heaven. D'Angelo takes Chicken Grease from <laughs> uh, from Common and, and they just really just sort of mess around with it. And it's really 
this very funk-laden song. It came out of a jam to Mother's Son, a Curtis Mayfield song, and then that led into Chicken Grease. But it's also sort of a tribute to P-Funk. And, you know, you can hear that in the song, and it's it's fun, and it's light. You know, it, it, you really can't imagine it as something where you just, you know, you got people, like, playing in a... Charts and stuff like that. Well, that's what I'm saying, right. It, it would just be like, a, you know, you're just in a garage or in a right, basement. Right, right, right. Fucking around, and it's like, oh, <laughs> this sounds good. We're going to do that. Right. That's awesome. Let's roll tape. So, I mean, even the title, I mean, it just alludes to, like, you know, house parties where you can see the condensation on the walls because it's just like dancing and doing you know whatever they wanted and it's just it's hot and it's sticky and whatever and it even name checks Crisco like the, the lyrics name check Crisco which anybody who has southern relatives and I, I remember because my grandmother who's from Alabama did it they they would use Crisco to fry food other people have olive oil you know black folks right, have Crisco right. and also the fact that D'Angelo there are parts in the song where you can't really understand what he's saying he wanted you to feel what he was saying you know what I'm saying? It was more about the passion and more about the spirit than it was literally what he was saying. The sloppiness of it. And that's what makes it so great because it's just it's just sort of like this release. It, you know, that's what that song feels like. And I think that's and I'm not even sure if it was intentional. I think it was just more just that's how the groove went. And at the end, you have chicken grease. So maybe on the flip side of that is Spanish joint. And that seemed to really resonate with you. And in fact, you call it, quote, the most sensual pep talk in music. Spanish joint is definitely the opposite of chicken grease in the sense that it was very meticulously planned by D'Angelo. Like, D'Angelo knew exactly what he wanted as far as sound, as far as notes, as far as timing. When I interviewed Charlie Hunter for the book, and he plays on Spanish Joint, he told me that D'Angelo was very detailed about what he wanted played, how he wanted things to sound on that. And actually, they recorded it in like an hour. That's how tight it was. Perfect. So that's the opposite of probably what happened with Chicken Grease and probably a majority of the album. Very particular to the point of being like like an army general, particularly like the horn section and in those harmonies. They're just succulent, you know? But also the lyrics are very profound and very pointed. It's basically D'Angelo sort of chastising someone in his life who, you know, you have those people who are just negative and everything is horrible. And he's saying, no, you know, you gotta, we gotta figure out a way to keep moving and keep living. And, and I mean, he may on a certain level been talking to him, to, uh, talking about himself. Right, right. Although in my research in the book, his ex-manager, Dominique Trenier, said that, that basically the song is sort of about his ex-girlfriend, Gina Aurora. So I think there's a little of both where he's like, it may have been about her, but I think he was also talking about just people in general who sort of get you down. Right, right. And I know I had someone like that in my life. And so when I heard that song, I really felt like, oh my God, he's literally singing to me. And because there are lines in that song, I mean, particularly the fourth verse, that I just was like, oh my God, like, who told you? You know, it's like, how did you know? I mean, that, that, that connection. You know, and, that, and that's where music is really powerful, you know, when you feel like people are speaking to your Absolutely. specific experience. And, and it makes you feel like, oh, okay, I'm not alone in this. So yeah, Spanish Joint has a very special place in my heart. And Devil's Pie is a track that you cast as kind of the anchor song of the album. Interestingly, Amani Perry, who is a professor of African-American studies at Princeton, is quoted in your book, and she encapsulates Devil's Pie as perhaps the conundrum of hip-hop itself. you have thoughts on that? Um, yes. I think Professor Perry was correct. I think I think it's the conundrum not just of hip hop, but I think the conundrum of black men. You know, Devil's Pie is a really poignant song about I think it's it's a black man coming at a crossroads of I wanna be a good person, I wanna be true to myself, but at the same time, I gotta survive. I got people to take care of, I gotta take care of myself. For a lot of black men, that means you're doing things that aren't legal or maybe be unethical. You know, and let me be clear, that's not exclusive to black men, but I think because of the history of particularly the United States, you know, racism, Jim Crow, etc., black men are going to have fewer options than other people. You know, Devil's Pie, you know, he's working that out. And I think to me, it's a it's a personal dilemma that he's facing, but also you 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 can use the music industry as an example. And I think uh Amani Perry was sort of talking about that too, where you know, you have these big companies signing these artists and in some cases this is the first time these artists have seen any kind of money you know they're just like oh wow 
now. You know, I can possibly be rich or be famous and, you know, be able to buy my mom a house or whatever. They are, you know, in many cases, I mean, there's a history of artists, in particular Black artists, signing really crappy deals with labels where they basically sign away their publishing rights. They sign away any kind of claim to future royalties and they get screwed. Uh, And actually, D'Angelo at one point talked about how the song was almost like a blues song you know, sort of comparing it to prisoners, you know, working in the fields or or actually I should say slaves working in the field for their masters, you know, singing blue songs or gospel songs as they pick the cotton. That was there. And I think, you know, he was he wanted to examine or really just sort of think out loud about his own part in that game. You know, like, am I am I contributing to this because I'm a successful artist? Am I being rewarded for things that I'm now criticizing them about? I mean, I want, you know, basically wanting to have it both ways. Yeah, you know, you may be ripping me off, but I'm also happy to be doing this and making money. So how how hard am I going to put my foot down about this? I think it's something that a lot of Black men face. They face it in the music industry. I think they face it in corporate America. They definitely face it, you know, if the choice is, do I join this gang or possibly get killed? Do I deal drugs when dealing drugs is the only real job that, will, you know, it's either that or I, I work at McDonald's and make no money. And I, you know, and I got to take care of my family. You know, devil's pie means different. You know, the, the idea of a devil's pie means different things to different people. You know, who is the devil and what is that pie you create? Right. And did you create that pie? Did you help yeah. bake that pie? You know, and I think particularly hip hop at the time, you know, a lot of it was, you know, about drugs and guns and killing folks and being on top and whatever. It was talking about real things that Black men were going through, but at the same time, what were the solutions? Was it a resignation of this is the world we live in? And again, that line, there's a line that was sampled from Fat Joe, Success, that I think just is the epitome of that song, which it says that's how it be in the everlasting game. To me, that's a white flag. To me, that's saying... This is what it is. So you got to be able to play this game to the best of your ability because that's this is the game we have. There is no alternate. That's very sad. And I think I think a lot of people, you know, have to make those decisions of what am I willing to do to get what I need to survive? I do think it's the anchor of that album because I think, you know, again, it's that sort of D'Angelo trying to sort of look at both sides of his personality, the good and the bad, you know, angel devil. And it's just like, which direction do I go? Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're speaking with Faith Pennock, who's the author of D'Angelo Voodoo on the 33 and a Third series. I want to go through a couple of tunes really quickly until we get to the big one that everybody knows and must be talked about. Mostly, you know, there's a lot of complexity, again, uh, that word is the one that always hit me. One Mogin is one. You'd mentioned something about this before, but it's the inaudibility in the production, the fact that you can't quite hear what he's saying in the story that you found most intriguing. Yeah, 
one more again, I, what I like about that intro is that, yeah, and it's funny because while I was writing the book, I had, I had to play that over and over and like really listen to it on headphones. Because yeah, it's really mixed down under the music. It's D'Angelo and a woman and we it's never revealed who the woman is. And But you can hear like they're talking and it sounds like at one point they're kissing and, what, and you're just like, what is this? What, you know, right. It's a very private, intimate moment that you're listening in on, which I think is sort of interesting because you know, I think it, most of us are nosy and you're just sort of like, wait, what are you, what's, what are you saying? Like, particularly, you know, when he's just like, she was glad to see you, baby, you know, that kind of thing. She's like, really? You know, I just thought like, wow, that's, you know, cause you're really wondering like, what are they, are they making out? What are, what are they doing? I think that's just as sensual as untitled. And I think because you can't really hear it and you really have to go and really have to play it over and over and really pay attention to that. I've always felt that was intriguing and also very sweet. It's, I mean, to me, it's very romantic. And I think most of us had that one person that we loved or lusted over, and we just never completely got over that person. I think it speaks to that. You know, it's a slow BPM and it's, you have to really like pay attention. And I, I think it's sort of hot. I don't, you know, and I think it's, but I think it's easy to sort of overlook it if you're just like, again, if you're just focused on the music and you're just focused on the arrangement, then, you know, then that doesn't mean anything to you. The way Pio Palladino plays bass on that, it's like, it really is like, it girds the song. It really brings forth an intensity to that song, but it, it doesn't take away from D'Angelo's vocals or the keyboards or anything. It gives it a different almost edge or danger, you know, without overwhelming the actual song. But it's like your heart beating. So you thought that song was hot, but if we Google hot and <laughs> D'Angelo, untitled is what's coming up, right? That's the thing that's going to come up. And, um, you know, that was written as kind of an homage to Prince. And, and to my ears, certainly, it, it wore the Prince influence on his sleeve. And it's a beautiful song. You know, the, lyrically, it's, it's really beautiful. And, and you wrote a line in your book that I thought was incredibly poignant, where you said, Black men can and do love, but it can be a hard flower to find when it's hidden in rough terrain. So, you know, that speaks to, you know, some of the complexity or, you know, of the lyrics, right? Honesty, honesty might be a better word. Right. Well, I mean, that's what I was saying before about emotional code switching. I think that's hard for black men to do because it's not always welcomed, accepted, expected. I do wonder if there wasn't the video, the entitled video, if people's reaction to the entitled song would be the same. I think what ended up happening is that because the song, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of a Prince homage, co-written by D'Angelo and Raphael Sadiq, who both love Prince. I mean, to me, that song is sort of, I mean, you know, it, it's sort of a, a, a basic comparison, but in a way, that song is D'Angelo's Do Me Baby. <laughs> great song. Which is a great song. <laughs> Particularly the album version, the long version of Do Me Baby was very controversial because of the ending where basically Prince is having an orgasm. So, <laughs> so it's like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Um, uh, I do wonder like, if, if the entitled video had never existed, if the reaction to the song would be different. Well, that's what I was getting at because it was a game changer in every sense of the word, both good and bad. And, you know, you'd mentioned earlier there was a very different and more of a negative response by men and maybe black men in particular when that came out. Oh, yeah. I actually wrote in a book about a young man. I was at a grocery store and the song came on the over the speakers. This dude just lost his shit. He just started screaming. I mean, I was just like, wait, what? I mean, I, you know, it, it, like, like he was triggered. I was just like, he was having some kind of PTSD moment from the Entitled song. And I, I thought, what is wrong with you? And it was pretty obvious to me that it wasn't about the song. It was about the video. And I think when that video came out, Black women in particular, but I think women in general, just this collectively passed out because it was everything we've ever wanted. Like, here's this attractive, talented, sensitive, young Black man with the six-pack and tats and thug, beautiful, singing to us, talking about how he will be everything that we desire. I mean, that was every heterosexual woman's dream. We were like, thank you, Jesus. I mean, we, we had waited for that, particularly considering that most of the videos out at the time were very male-centric, made for men, had, you know, women in string bikinis laid out. Violence. On, well, violence too, but yeah, but just, you know, but I'm talking just from a sexual standpoint, just women just, just objectified all day and night. Because like back in the day, you had like, you know, LL Cool J with a shirt off. You had Tupac with the Thug Life tattoo. You had um, DMX, 50 Cent. 
sense. So you had all these guys who were like, you know, showing their abs, showing their bodies, whatever. And, you know, and that was like a thug thing to do. Like, yeah, look how hard right, I am, right. you know, literally rock hard. Look at my abs. But when D'Angelo did it, because it was this sensitive song, quote unquote sensitive song, where he's basically seducing a woman. And it was like, no, fuck this shit, you know, and dudes couldn't roll with it. Women were like, yay. And I think part of it is because men were mad that their girlfriends, wives, daughters, sisters, mothers were glued to the TV every time that video came on. And for four minutes, they, you know, that man didn't exist, you know? So they were just like, how dare you have this thing to turn you on? And and I'm invisible for four minutes. The reaction was sort of, it was interesting, you know, how it it really showed the chasm between men and women among African-Americans. It it was pretty stark. And if you look up, I Googled that video and I watched that video. It comes up almost always as one of the top 10 kind of videos in terms of game changer and, and, and. And, you know, the emotional reaction and, and all those things that you talk about. And it's still there in the, the pantheon of those examples. Oh, yeah. I mean, that video was the idea of D'Angelo's manager at the time, the late Dominic Trenier. And he came up with it because he wanted D'Angelo to be a star. He felt like the merits of the album as a musical creation was not going to be enough to keep the attention of a mass audience. At the time, MTV was huge. They actually played videos. I mean, hence the name. Uh, in music television. And if you want to blow up a recording artist, you better have a killer music video that MTV is going to put into heavy rotation. I mean, we saw that with Michael Jackson. We saw that with Nirvana. If you had a video that is is just going to like literally set the TV on fire, then people are going to pay attention. Ergo, you're going to sell records. I mean, he said, okay, well, let's have a video where D'Angelo is naked. Although he wasn't really naked. He had sweatpants on. But, um, you know, D'Angelo didn't want to do it. Or I shouldn't say he didn't want to do it, but he was sort of like, he was hesitant because he was like, you really want me to be naked? And because he's super shy, he was sort of like, I don't Trenier made his case and D'Angelo went, okay, yeah, I, I think you're correct on this. And he started, you know, D'Angelo started working out with Mark Jenkins. They shot the video. The video comes out November 99. And sure enough, I mean, just, it's like an atom bomb going off. I mean, everybody I knew, or I should say all the women I knew, I think for a good, all they were talking about was that video. All I kept hearing was, oh my God, a D'Angelo video, blah, 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 blah. It did what it was supposed to do. Voodoo came out. It debuted in number one on the Billboard album chart. Everybody was buzzing about it. But of course, what ended up happening is that the video became a bigger discussion than the actual album or and the song. Right. You right. know? And of course, D'Angelo started resenting that because he's like, hi, I'm a musician. I'm an artist. I spent more than three years working on this thing. And y'all just want to talk about my abs, you know? <laughs> that put him in his feelings, you know? Rightfully so. So it so not only were black men sort of starting to push back on it, D'Angelo himself was starting to put back, push back on it because it was the snowball that became an avalanche. And everybody sort of lost control of the narrative because then it just became about D'Angelo being a sex symbol and women yelling, take it off at his concerts. So I want to wrap this up on something that the vice president of Sirius XM said, Dion Summers, and I, I have to agree with it. And he said that Voodoo would be a mixed success if it was released today due to the fact that our attention spans are smaller now. And we've discussed how complex the record is, both from a production standpoint and how lyrically and those kinds of things. And now we've ended up at a video that's, you know, 180 degrees from there and was massive. Uh, what, what do you think about his comment? I think uh, Dion is correct, unfortunately. At the time, I think Voodoo was a hard sell in the sense that it wasn't really a radio-friendly album. Pretty much Untitled was the only song that got any kind of real radio airplay. Send It On got a little bit. And really, again, it was the video, it was the Untitled music video that gave the album its biggest push. The question is always, do they buy it more based on what they hear and what they see as opposed to, you know, a New York Times reviewer saying, this is amazing. I think now it would even be a harder sell because one, MTV isn't even MTV anymore. They don't really play music videos anymore. I mean, YouTube is the new MTV. Right, right. I do think if you put it out on YouTube, it would obviously get attention. 
And actually, I think I, I checked. I, I, I think Voodoo had, last I checked, something like 18 million views on YouTube. Now, again, again, it's been on there for years, but right, right. still, people are still watching that video. <laughs> so I think definitely it would, it would still hit the cultural zeitgeist, but it would be a different way. And I think, and also I think how it would play out on social media. I, I don't even know what the reaction would be, you know, if we had had Twitter and yeah, Facebook. That's interesting. Uh, when it came out, that would have been, because then you really would have had a whole bunch of just massage and homophobic and crazy things being said about D'Angelo, about the video on Twitter in particular. And that would have been a hot mess. It would have hit, but I think the reaction would have been way more weaponized and more problematic. So I don't know. Again, I don't know if that would have helped album sales. One, I just think people have shorter attention spans now and everything is so niche oriented. I mean, if you look at, you know, people have their own playlists on Spotify and I think people now are more in their bubbles as far as what they listen to, who they listen to. It's harder to break through, particularly again, with an album like Voodoo, where you're trying to do different different genres and do different things and not be like everybody else. It's, it's harder to get a hold on what a mass audience would enjoy, you know, because everything is so fractured right now as far as listening habits. I mean, it's based on genres and subgenres and age. And, you know, it's just particularly something that's more difficult. It's harder to get that wide berth. And I think uh, Dion Summer said, you know, this new generation of music listeners and music fans, it's a beat influenced generation. If you're just there for the beats and the the samples and sort of the, you know, eh, you know, that sort of, I mean, I don't, I don't want to mock it, but you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, it, it, there's a certain sound expectation of sound that particularly trap has set up as the standard for what's being played on radio. And if you're trying to buck that, it's going to be harder for you to get played. I mean, how many... It, and there's no such thing anymore as mainstream radio, really, that's dying. Again, it's like it, everything is siloed. I don't know if there's the audience for it, the patience for it. Because again, when it came out in 2000, not everybody was down. I mean, I think people grew up with it. They grew up and caught up with, with voodoo. I don't think there's that patience to catch up with a record now. I think the record has to get you. And if it doesn't get you, people will leave it by the side. You know, they'll just leave it at the wayside. That's a perfect line to leave it on. You know, our guest today has been Faith Pennick, and she wrote a book on the 33 and a third series for D'Angelo's Voodoo record. I was unfamiliar with the record. I went and listened to it and was amazed by what I heard. So I want to thank you, Faith, for that. And I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you again, Steve. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much. If you'd like to find out more about her book, please visit allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout-out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music-books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 